Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Search for Growth. In this episode, we're going to talk about my story leading to international expansions at Spendesk and what are the, some of the frameworks and principles that I've taken away from that experience. We're going to discuss the difference between a customer development versus an acquisition go-to-market. We're going to discuss the PSP framework for positioning, segmentation, and product. And how did we get our first 50 customers? And with that, we'll get into the episode. How are you doing, Chris? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Very perky today. Yeah. Yeah. It's about to be Thanksgiving when we are. We're learning this thing where depending on when we record it, we can only use dates in a specific way. And so who knows when we actually release this, but Thanksgiving's coming up in a week. <laughs> yeah. We're trying to, for context for the audience, we are recording multiple episodes per week, but only releasing one per week. And we are testing a bunch of different types of formats from interviews to discussing topical things in the news, book breakdowns and our own experiences and giving ourselves some leeway into when we release those. But when we talk about things like, oh, this is what happened yesterday, who knows what yesterday means if it's not actually yesterday. So we're trying to use the Amazon way of talking and being very specific with on this <laughs> particular date. So hopefully that's somewhat helpful. We're recording this on November 15th, which is before Thanksgiving. Yes. It's also an interesting situation with the feedback that we're getting because sometimes the feedback is going to be a little de delayed, but it makes sense in this situation to just keep working on our back and forth. And we know the areas that we need to work on and try in different formats that the feedback will come whenever we release it. So in the previous episode, we know that... I one, we're like sometimes make some weird noises that are hard to edit out. We have an editor now, so we're figuring out how to improve editing and some is easier than others. My table moves a lot. I like need to get another ta table. And again, we just need to like really hammer home the ta takeaways. I think that's the biggest piece of feedback. Yeah, editing has been a huge help because we got rid got rid of a lot of fluff, filler words, and blank spaces, and have a much higher ratio of takeaways to, to to waffle, which I think is the key thing for this audience. On the topic of editing, we have hired an editor, and which means we now have the YouTube channel up. So there's three recordings as of November fifteenth on the YouTube channel. We now have a TikTok. This is TikTok. the first ever TikTok I've ever made, <laughs> and really surprised actually because I uploaded it. I have no followers, and the video I uploaded yesterday has already got like five hundred views. And 37 likes and is awesome so i feel like that could be a really useful organic way to spread the word at the moment i've just been leveraging the and at the moment where i have an existing audience and yeah so we're learning and figuring out distribution for this podcast along the way and figuring out how to work together and what value we can bring to the pod and make it the best for listeners let's get into this uh, let's get into this episode i'm excited to to talk to me yeah it's gonna be a cool episode because i don't know the details about spendesk like we've, we're like great friends, but I don't think I've asked some of these questions of you before. And yeah, it's just a cool background that you have. I, so I know what Spendesk is, but for our listeners, what is Spendesk? Yeah, great question. So Spendesk <laughs> is a B2B platform. We sell to finance teams, generally small and medium-sized enterprises and fast-growing technology-based companies. We sell corporate cards and spend management. So in the world of spend management, there is how do I how do I get my employees to pay for things at work, whether it be a credit card, making an expense claim or paying an invoice. And these processes are typically very manual, painful, you know, 
lack of control and we centralize everything into one platform where we can actually issue cards for our customers and they can distribute those to employees and then the finance team have full visibility and control of everything that happens whilst automating all of the boring accounting work and low value added tasks. Yeah, and just to clarify, spend management is different than expense management. Um, that was something that confused me initially. Yeah. Before Spendesk existed, spend management wasn't really a thing. It's a category that's been created over the last few years for multiple players on the market. And what's come out of that is expense management is probably the most historically famous. You've got companies like Expensify and Concur. And expense management is more, I've got an employee, they pay out of their pocket and I need to record that, upload a receipt, reconcile that, and then I need to pay them back. Whereas spend management is the ensemble of all of the the below expense management, invoice payments and card payments. Beyond Spendesk, are there other companies that people may have heard of? Yeah, for sure. In Europe, there's companies like Playo is one of our competitors. Who else have we got? Payhawk is a new one that's on the rise. They're doing really well. In the US, there's Ramp, Airbase, Brex, Mesh. Those are like the newer tech companies that more resemble Spendesk. Then you've got some incumbents, like I said, Expensify, Concur, yeah. and then there's a whole long tail distribution of people in that space. So how long have you been at Spendesk? Coming up to five years now, half a wow. decade. I've got more gray hairs now than I did when I started. <laughs> I got the job in December 2017, started on the 3rd of January 2018, and it's been a wild ride ever since. Yeah, so... What did they hire you as initially? When I started, I was moving from Bloomberg, which was more institutional yep. sales. So moving into the startup world for the first time, I started at the first rung in the ladder, which is a SDR, a sales development representative. And that role effectively was to go out and create opportunities and generate leads within the market that we could then close. So my role consisted mainly of sending cold emails, doing cold calls, going to events, drumming up business, and then closing deals. And then throughout my time, I then went from being an SDR to closing deals to doing the full cycle, then hired a team, then ran the UK market as the head of sales. And then in March, 2020, I moved over to San Francisco to launch my second market, which is the US. So launching two go-to-markets, and that's pretty impressive. So what were your biggest takeaways doing that? For me, there's probably three useful frameworks that I've learned. The first one is customer development versus an acquisition go-to-market. The second one is the PSP framework, which is all around product segmentation and positioning. And then the third one is, and we'll discuss this in a bit more detail, is how do we actually get our first 50 customers? So customer development and acquisition. When we first launched in the UK, we basically did an acquisition go-to-market, which is let's just try and sell the product. And I think this is what 99% of people do. And we were lucky at the time and in our naive state, and particularly my naive state, I don't think we really realized how much of a product market fit we actually had. And that meant we went out to the market, we had to explain what spend management was, there was some education, but there was a real fit. There was a, a big demand and there wasn't enough supply of companies solving this. And so we just executed the playbook and it worked. Our biggest mistake was probably not accelerating quick enough. When we went to the US, we didn't have product market fit. And the reason is why. On the pain side, we had a strong fit. Customers had the pain. They were our ideal customer profiles, similar to what we had in Europe. But the problem was we were four years late to the market. We were already behind in terms of some of the incumbents in terms of product development, being in Europe compared to the US, who's generally more technology savvy. And the competitors in the US 
have all funded or raised funds to a bigger tune and focused on the same market. So ultimately their products were better when we first got here. And so that meant that we had a pain fit, but the solution fit wasn't there. So ultimately we didn't have product market fit. Can you back up for one sec? When you say customer develop, you're talking about the US situation. And when you say customer acquisition, you're talking about what the status quo was in the UK? When we were in the UK, we executed a, an acquisition go-to-market. When we came to the US, we did the same thing and then pivoted towards what I refer to as customer development, okay, right. which is a concept you can find in this book, which I highly recommend to everybody, called The Four Steps to an Epiphany by Steve Blank. Are you familiar with agile development? Yes. So in, in the product world, this is lean startup mentality, which is to put something out there, an MVP, get feedback, iterate and improve it. The thought process of that is if you take a year to develop the perfect product and then put that out and then it flops, you've wasted a year. Whereas if your competitor puts out a product after month one, which is going to be way shitter, but you put it in front of people, you get that feedback loop quicker and then iterate that 12 times. What you have at the end of a year is going to be far better than the person who hasn't iterated. A lot of people are saying that's the problem with what Meta is having with their metaverse problem. Where exactly. They're just uh, behind closed walls. It might not be totally behind closed walls. There might be some product out there, but most of the development's happening not in front of customers, which and, could be challenging. And there's a real problem. So like, what's the problem with that? You're not getting the feedback loop from the customers. You're not necessarily accelerating your learning. This same mentality of how you use agile development in product development, it's the same and similar mentality in go-to-market, which is the problem with most founders in the beginning is they take their product and they try and sell it too soon. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try and sell it, but the way that you go and do that, it should be different, which is you should be optimizing learnings over trying to optimize revenue. It, just to bring it to wavelength for a sec, our first customer was my fraternity at college and we gave it to them for free. And the point of that was I knew the people running the organization and I could have like hour long chat with all of them and get tons of customer feedback from them. I wasn't making much money from them, but the like feedback loop of was super short and I could get a lot of signal versus if I were like going out to some of these high schools or like more sophisticated organizations, my the product was not going to be high enough quality to actually sell it to them right off the bat. Exactly. And we had a similar thing where in the US, like I said, we took a, an acquisition go-to-market approach where we said, okay, we know our ICP, we know the messaging, this is the value proposition, this is the ideal customers, let's go sell some spend desk. And when that didn't go into plan, we didn't have the same conversion rates, we weren't having the same retention, we weren't able to close the same sort of customers, we said, okay, there's something wrong here. And when you're trying to send a cold email to a customer and you're trying to hook them on a particular pain point and present a value proposition. The issue is that works when you know what the value proposition is and the pain points are. But if you don't know what they are, and in any new international expansion, that's going to be the case because there's always subtleties and contextual changes. So if you focus on revenue, focus on trying to close, you're actually not learning. So we using that as an example, the better way is to try and pivot your approach to optimize for learning. And there's lots of ways, closing customers and seeing what percent close or not is definitely a data input, but it's not the only one. You, if you want to figure out what pains speak to a particular audience, you don't have to just do that, discover that through trying to sell. There's many different ways 
experience. You could go to an event, speak to a bunch of people, interview customers and so on and so forth. So that was the one big approach. And that's, I think, where I see founders slip up the most is especially if there's a founder who's then employed someone to run a go-to-market. You need to be careful because the incentives that you drive your go-to-market team with, if they're too focused on revenue, it creates bad behavior. If there's one takeaway, it is revenue happens as a consequence of good product market fit. And it's not the goal in itself. The product market fit is the goal. And the quickest way to get there is through quick iterations and validated, validating hypotheses and learning. Interesting. So you were selling the same thing from the UK in the US, trying to sell the same pain points, but you're saying they didn't resonate as well in the US because of the competitive landscape or were there different behaviors between the US buyers and UK buyers that necessitated difference in collateral and messaging? Both. The competitive landscape is very different. The way people structure and price, what becomes your anchor, your competitors can anchor your customers to a particular pricing structure or expectations. The competitive landscape is definitely a big thing. That may be one. Uh, another one is geographical specificities in the way that people manage spend at work. I'll give you one example. In Germany, people use cash quite a lot. So you huh. can't really pay for a taxi with a card. It's going to be in cash. So how do you manage that on the platform? In Europe as well, credit cards are not a big thing. Most people don't own a credit card. The credit score doesn't determine that much of your life. And there's a almost an antitrust towards credit where that's very much the opposite in the US. And when you look at that as a landscape, one interesting takeaway that we had is in Europe hate expense claims where they pay out of their pocket because they're out of cash. Sometimes they're paying, it could be up to 50% of their monthly salary in expense claims if they're like a traveling oh, salesperson. You don't and have the points game. No, because they're not doing it on credit cards. And even if they are there, even if they do have it on a credit card, it's still generally like they're less incentivized because the financial infrastructure behind the credit and points and rewards is much of a thing in Europe than the US. So when you when we came over to the US, let's one of the messaging is, hey, your employees are going to hate expense claims. Let's uh, let's fix that for them. And you're like, hang on a minute, we got SDRs that are taking their boss out and putting six hundred to a grand for dinner, like on their personal credit card, and wanting to take the bill. Never yeah. have that in the UK. And we were like, hang on a minute, there's a shit, there's a cultural change in the market, and that's not that's not if you wanted to take an employee centric approach and build a value proposition for the end user, that wouldn't be the one. And mm. my point there is you only discover that either by losing deals because your messaging doesn't work or not even getting them in the first place, or there's a customer development approach, which is let's try and focus on learning first to then figure out what is the right approach? What is the right fit? Who are the right customers? And then you can execute that and then start growing. So before you try and grow your acquisition, <laughs> figure out your customer development. Yeah, so they decided to send you to the US right before COVID and figure this out. When other people are doing international expansions, is that the typical mode where you have someone at the company go and create the home base? Or was there any thought in hiring an international person that may have direct experience with th those customers and those differences in pain points? Yeah, I think we, so we first, before we went out, we hired a guy called Aman. Shout out to Aman, if you're listening, great guy. And he grew up in the Bay Area, was living in Canada, in Vancouver. And he did a, a lot of kind of exploratory work of the market whilst we were still in Europe and getting our visas and everything else ready. I think in general, when you're figuring out who to send over for an international expansion, it's really, it's a really difficult position to fill because it works best when you send someone who is uh, ingrained in the DNA of the company who's either been there since the beginning, they are acting as an ambassador of the company, they know the culture. When 
outside of just getting customers and, and making money in an expansion, you, you don't want to create a new company in every country. You want to create yeah. an extension of your existing company. And that's very hard to do if you just hire 100% new people, especially if it's in leadership. But then that raises the question of who goes. Is it the CEO? Is it someone, you know, someone who's risen up through the ranks in the sales team, which is the, the case for me? It's a really challenging position. And in, in the end, core market is still in Europe. And that's where our executive team is. And so the way we've done it is have someone, I was 20th employee in the company and had been there a while and already had the experience in the UK. And so it, it made sense to do that. But it's very challenging role to, to try and fill if the CEO isn't the one going over. Yeah, now you get to wake up for Euro hours every once in a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a standard play to wake up early on the West Coast. But when you're just dealing with New York, that's one thing. When you've got to deal with Paris and London, that's, yeah, that's a few early mornings. Did it take you a while to realize the difference that the pain points you were selling weren't resonating? Is this a week, a month, six months? Like, when, how much data that you need before you're like, something's not working. I think you have data straight away. And once you've got, again, depending on the kind of velocity of your sales cycle, how many deals you're closing, if you've got a, if you're just doing inter enterprise with multiple hundred thousands of dollars contracts, and you might be closing in a couple of year or a couple of quarter, it's really hard because that's a very slow totally. uh, feedback loop. In our case, we'd sell to more SMEs. So it's more higher velocity and shorter sales cycles. So the feedback loops quicker, but still nonetheless, once you've got 10 customers, the Pareto law, you can get 80% of your learnings from 20% of the work. Mm -hmm. I think once you've spoken to 10 customers, you know, the difference between learnings from 10 customers to 100 is more, it's in the margins. And so you, I think we, again, this is definitely a mistake that we made is we continue to try and sell to this segment that initially was working for us before for too long, knowing that we weren't really going to be able to serve that. And I think you take away number two is when you are doing this customer development, you have to predefine what does this success look like? And what are the variables for saying this experiment should be stopped and we should move on to something else? Mm -hmm. And you've got what's coming in maybe in the top of funnel. So how many are converting on your website, coming inbound, how many people respond to your emails? These are signals that you're maybe messaging or who you're targeting is not right. And then obviously once they come in the funnel and then you watch your close rate and is that a good close rate? If some good close rates, I guess industry standards are probably somewhere in the range of 25 to 35% as a close as a closing range. Anything below 25%, you've got to start asking questions. Anything yeah. above, you're looking really strong. And so that's one. And then even when they become a customer, that is also indicative maybe on just how well you're able to sell the vision and you know what you're saying that you're going to solve but the product has to live up to the pitch right so the third one is going to be retention churn can take a while to come into play so what's a leading indicator churn is a lagging indicator yeah what's a leading indicator it's going to be product usage so we will look at how many employees get put on to the platform what kind of spend that they use how many payments are they making how often are they doing their books and these sorts of things so we try and look throughout the whole acquisition funnel and look for metrics that can indicate whether there is good product market fit, both in terms of acquisition and retention. How, how do you know though that it's a like copy or your product market fit versus the distribution channel is just different for the US versus the UK? Maybe, what do you mean? Like maybe people in the UK don't use email as much as they use social media. I'm making all this stuff up. Mm. But how do you know that close rate, like open rates on email have to do with the messaging versus just like how people interact with that distribution? 
distribution channel. Well, the things with email is really difficult because you don't have the res you don't have a feedback loop. Your only feedback yeah. is whether people reply or not. And so you don't have any context as to why they don't. You have context as to mm -hmm. why they do, but then there's survivorship bias. So that's challenging. I think most of the learning comes obviously when you get the customers on the phone okay. and you actually start speaking to them. And then again, you can isolate and say, once we get customers, there's a really good close rate and they love the platform and there's a good NPS score. Outside of that, maybe the lead generation is not working. So what people would tend to use the platform for maybe different to what they first signed up for. And then we need to tweak and modify the copy on the website, for example. Cool. How, so you were talking about getting a ton of insights from those first 10 customers. How did you get your first 10, 50 customers? Cool. So this was going to be the, the third point. So we'll jump to this one now. We took this acquisition approach and in Spendesk, we have historically have a very outbound driven model. We have SDRs, they call cold, cold email, LinkedIn, direct mail, turn up events, these sorts of things to generate opportunities. And that's worked very well for us. And we have the skill set to do that. So that's how we started interacting in the US market from day one. The key pivot that we made is in what I already said in terms of instead of trying to pitch something, we actually pivoted and said, and hey, and I can I can send some examples of this in the show notes, or if you subscribe to the, the searchforgrowth.com newsletter, we can put them there. These the emails they changed where instead of trying to pitch the pain or the solution, we actually just tried to pitch a meeting. And so we knew who we wanted to target in terms of the segment and the ideal customer profiles. And then we said, hey, you are a VP of finance or a CFO in this industry. Based on your LinkedIn profile, you've handled NetSuite and QuickBook. You tend to be, your kind of role tends to be power users of Spendesk. And we're actually just launching in the US. I would love to interview you to understand your particular role and the adaptations that need to be done for this market to help in our, our own international expansion. This isn't a sales call. This is me simply trying to learn. And that worked extremely well because A, people don't like to be sold to, but people going back to the influence book, we spoke about this offline. People, people like themselves. Uh, they like to see themselves in high regard. And if they see themselves as an expert, people are really happy and willing to share their knowledge because it makes them feel good. And there's no skin off their back for doing that other than just the time it takes on the call. But that's the ask that you're, you're getting from them. And effectively, we did a bunch of these beta interviews, we called them. And obviously, a percentage of those people had the pain that we were solving for. And then in those interviews, we come to the end of it, it's effectively like a discovery. And then it's a case of, oh, it sounds like you've actually got the pain that we are solving for. So outside of the, you know, this call, which has been really helpful, thank you very much. Would you be interested in exploring Spendest as a solution for the pain that you just told me you've experienced? And then a percentage of those will convert. The downside of that is the conversion rates are going to be lower because more people are going to be willing to give you feedback than necessarily have a problem you solve for. But it then optimizes for that learning. And then obviously you get customers from that. So that was one of the big ways that we were to scale that. But to go maybe like a step behind that, another takeaway is you always have to lean into where your strengths are. In Spendesk, we had an existing and profitable market in, in Europe. And a lot of these companies also had offices in the US. So there's already a base of customers to speak with who have American teams, American finance people, and have a, a treasure trove of knowledge to share with you that you can then, they may already be users, and but you're not, again, we're not trying to close revenue, we're trying to close learnings. Uh, and so we leaned into that. We got a list, segmented those people, reached out to those and started learning. And then the third leverage that we had was we're a French company. 
And uh, it's actually very easy for you to search for finance people who have French as a second language on LinkedIn, who are based in San Francisco or anywhere else. And so we reached out to them in French, either with voice notes or written. And my colleague at the time, Jeremy, who was helping me launch the market, he is French. So his French is a lot better than mine. And again, there's, uh, there's like a bond between expats abroad and wanting to help those people succeed and do well. And they were more than happy to help us. So that's also how we got an, uh, quite a few of our customers is focusing on those people, those the, the French community, which is very strong in America and leaning into that. So those were our, our kind of three. U.S. That's... customers of U.S. wallets, French people, and then pivoting to beta interviews. I didn't realize you could search by language on LinkedIn. Yeah. You know a lot about LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my job too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So with LinkedIn, like how you got in front of most of these people, or is it email, like these learnings, conversations? What, a bit of channels? both. Yeah. LinkedIn, email, calls. I, during COVID, so as you said, I came in March 2020. One week, boom, lockdown happened. I was parked up in an apartment. We arrived with two suitcases. I had this kind of makeshift desk in the corner and I was you know, hammering the hammering the phones, going back to my roots as an SDR and uh, cold calling. And uh, But again, the cold calls were in a way. It hey, we're launching in the US. We bring in our CFO Connect community over here. I want to tell you a bit about that. And uh, you're also one of the ideal customers that I'd love to learn from you. And conversations happened and that's how we got started. And all you need to do is do enough to get to the next stage. And that was not scalable, what we were doing, but it got us to the next stage. Do you want to talk a little bit about the PSP framework? Yeah, totally. So the PSP framework, as I mentioned, in the UK, we basically had product market fit straight away and we were just naive and didn't execute quick enough on it as we could have double the revenue in half the time. In the US, there was product market fit challenge. And so when you have this challenge in the light of customer development, you need to be able to pivot and test new hypotheses. What I came to realize was there's effectively three things that you can pivot and change. And there's probably more, but this is a, a nice top line takeaway. And those three things are, you can change your product, you know, what you sell, you can change your segmentation. So who you sell to, and then you can change your positioning, which is how you sell. The positioning is probably the easiest thing to change in terms of a quick feedback loop. You can change the copy on your website. You can A-B test that. You can change your emails in every message. You can change your, your pitch on a cold call. So cold calls were way quicker to get that feedback loop compared to emails because you're actually speaking to customers and seeing what lands. But there's a limitation with the positioning because ultimately we weren't trying to build a different company in the US. We we're mm -hmm. trying to build Spendesk in the US with our vision of all-in-one spend management. So there's only so much that you can pivot away from your core positioning. But for example, things like the expense claims being for employees or not, that's like a prime example. We tested that. It didn't work. We, we changed it. Segmentation takes longer depending on your go-to-market. If you're doing outbound, it might take you one to one to two months just to get an opportunity from your prospection. And then you've got to go through the sales process. And then only at the end of that, depending on how long your sales process is, do you know if it was a, a good fit or not? So that's a little bit harder. If you've got inbound, that's really helpful because you can test a ton of different segments at the same time because they're coming to you. And they're also self-qualifying to a certain degree because they're saying, hey, I'm raising my hand. Your messaging speaks to me. And then we learn a ton from inbound because we're like, oh, wow, there's this theme in this segment that we didn't think about. We didn't. We we weren't targeting with outbound, but it's coming inbound and they're closing at a high percentage. And Were then you we able can... to get inbound pretty quickly right off the bat? 
We were quite lucky in the US because we'd already had a UK blog in English and that was performing mm. in the US in an equal, if not even better in, in the US. And so we were doing outbound for a while and then we started getting inbound from this blog and we're like, hang on a minute. There was only like a, a couple of oppos every month. It wasn't a huge yeah. amount, but it was enough to see that there was a trend here. And then we said, okay, let's just like double and triple this. Let's, let's lean into this. And so we hired a freelance blog writer specifically for the US to try and cover those topics, doubled the traffic in, in the on the you know, English blog, which related to the US. And then pivoted and changed the message into to these kind of companies. And that really helped. So we leaned much more into inbound. I would think products, obviously the hardest. You have to pay engineers to change things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that was exact that was the hardest for us because not only does it take the longest to do, you it's a long process and a cycle. It's the most costly to do. And then you're also in if you're doing an international expansion, you're you're also competing in with not just against the you know, other incumbents in the market, but you're competing for internal resources. And uh, that was by far the hardest thing to manage is how do you get enough movement in the product to take the feedback you've learned to acquire new customers, whilst also keeping the wheels on the machine in your core countries. Another takeaway is I think a lot of companies underestimate how difficult it is to expand internationally. You take Intercom, the chatbot for a website. Yeah. The product market fit is quite ubiquitous. Seven lines of code on your website and you've got a chatbot and you can speak with customers. Yep. Spend this is not quite the same because it's different in every country how people spend. So it, obviously it does depend on the product that you have, but product is, is by far the hardest thing out of the PSP framework to pivot and change. But it's also arguably one of the most important. How do you know, though, that you're spending enough resources to actually solve this problem versus I just feel like you're dropped into a new country. There are so many variables that are creating so many much noise as to how your product performs. It could be messaging. It could be product. It could be competitors. It could be how distribution channels work. Like, how are you isolating those different things and saying, this is how we need to tweak each of these variables in order to get closer to product market fit. It's very difficult if you're looking at it from like a statistical significance perspective, just be, especially if you don't have a super high volume sales cycle. The approach to take is one of directional correctness. So you want to be heading in the right direction and having a certain level of confidence but it is trial and error and a lot of tweaking and a, a lots of iteration. But when you talk about the messaging, if we're not sure if it's the product or it's the messaging, it's quite easy for us to change the positioning on the website yeah. and change how we cold call and then see, is that receptive? Then if that is receptive and we can still fundamentally sell the same product with a slight different angle, then, okay, you've got some directional correct correctness there. Ultimately, if it's on the product side, you know, it, you're going to take the customers who come in and then see how they use the platform. And that takes a bit longer. So there definitely are ways of identifying those. It's not clear cut and it's not clean. It is dirty and it does take, a, I think, a lot of intuition as well. One thing I was reading this week is about A-B testing and how A-B testing is actually, a lot of people think about A-B testing is like you are determining whether this widget performs better than that widget or it like traffic changes or usage changes. But actually A-B testing is not, even though it seems like it's that one element, it's, it's basically the sum of all decisions up to that point that it is testing. Yeah. What's challenging about that is is if you're making those incremental changes, maybe you're trying, you like reach a local maximum versus an absolute maximum because mm. you're making the incremental changes that are performing slightly better. But had you 
made a change that in the short term performed a little worse, you would have reached an end goal that's a lot more successful. This is what I think is interesting about brand, because brand is one of those things where it's so difficult to try and quantify brand. But I feel like it's very easy to feel on the front lines, the absence of brand. When you reach out to a customer, they don't necessarily know what you do, but they've heard your brand. They're more likely to answer to your email. When you are closing a, an account and you're you know, trying to pitch the value you provide for a demo and everything else, if you have no brand and no authority, then you are building that relationship from scratch every time in the deal. And you have to only basically close on the value that you can prove in that process. Whereas mm -hmm. brand acts, acts like a, a proxy. So brand is one of those things which I think is so important and powerful because it, it allows you to lubricate the entire a revenue machine but it's difficult for that exact reason like attributing the impact of something like brand so trying to aim for any sort of statistical significance is almost futile you have to just shoot and aim and make big bets and see what pays off spendesk has a brand is it significantly different across countries in, in when you say different in what context just like how people perceive the company obviously there are there's copy that is written for one company one country versus another but and i'm not talking about spendesk in particular but one let's talk about a generic company you could conceive of a company being like luxury brand in country a and then in country b because of the dynamics it is like a middle of the road or like a cheaper alternative, like just how the brand perception could be different. I don't know like what the dynamics would be if I was to give you like a top line of each country, but I think that in, in our domestic country, France, where we were born out of, the brand, interestingly enough, really stemmed more from employer brand than it did mm. from the brand kind of just purely within finance teams. There was a lot of there's people in our company that were producing a lot of content online, not necessarily talking about finance. A lot of the brand, it was around the company being one of one of France's, I think we were the 26th unicorn in France. The president Macron posted about us as one of the rising stars. And there's a people knew who we were because of the employer brand. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of around just the success of the company. But that was really powerful because that was a brand that was known within the startup ecosystem who were also our ideal customer profile at that time. That really helped propel that when you go into in internationally expand, you don't have that same credit that you first started with. So you build it in different ways. I think the community we have CFO is something that really helps in terms of creating that brand of authority, a learning center. It's our product at Spendest isn't just a spend management platform. It's we're really elevating a modern finance people. And we're doing that in one in the product, but also in how we're supporting them in the ecosystem outside of that. And that translates into different, different countries in different ways. So talk a little bit about, you've talked a lot about learning like how did you figure all this stuff out <laughs> yeah smashing my head against the wall yeah. <laughs> that's the main one that's the um, answer learning i have a framework for learning and, and it served me so far i think a lot of people like to go the easy route and try and find a playbook find the silver bullet what's what has someone else done that's worked and try and find a mentor try and find a coach you're gonna say you do something. like your fr frameworks though yeah because like I, I know people love it that's the thing but I, th there's a difference so for me I like to talk about frameworks and not 
playbooks. I've written an article about this on Rocket GTM. Playbooks, hey, I've been the VP of sales in a ACV of 10 to 10 to 40K a year, this sales cycle, and this is what worked yeah. and we, we scaled the company. The issue is when you hire that VP because of the playbook he's executed, that's a bad thing because the context, even if it's like the same market, the same thing, everything else, there'll be some contextual difference, which means that won't work for you. So playbooks are only successful if the context is 100% the same. With frameworks, it's really about the first principles thinking behind why that playbook worked. And that's what you want to hire people for is to, are they able to think in frameworks and principles that can then be used in different contexts to have the similar outcomes? Have you heard of Wait But Why? Yeah. Tim Urban, it's a blog. He does a lot. He's had a lot of Elon, like long form pieces, but he also talks about a lot of how we should perceive time, et cetera. And that is actually, his time blog is excellent. And think about how old you are. Think about how many days left you actually have with your oh, parents. This is, the, this is like the chart. It's like now poster. You, yeah. Everyone gets yeah, the posters yeah, yeah, like yeah, how yeah. your day in, your life in days and totally. how many times you're going to see your mum before you die and these sorts of things. But I think it was him. He has a, an article called Cook versus Chef where yeah. he's talking about this dynamic where a cook is somebody who is like given a recipe, can execute on the recipe, but isn't able to necessarily be a chef who knows the fund fundamental like salt, fat, acid, heat. Like these are how ingredients should go together. Yeah. Can understand, oh, in this situation, I should have this recipe. In this situation, I will take that recipe and I will tweak it a little bit and do something slightly different and create a novel recipe based on the second context. That is so spot on. That is so spot on. And that's what I try and think about in whenever I'm seeing these experiences. Like I'm always trying to see them as not as what's the copy paste of the recipe. I'm always trying to think of what's the alchemy behind that what's the interaction of these different things that make this work and if you can extract a framework from that that can be applied then that's scalable that's helpful you can use that in, in different examples you asked a, a bit about like just how i thought about learning i was mentioning where people try and ask others is that almost like the default and i found that in my own experience that lazy people ask others because they just want the answers and i don't necessarily think that being lazy is a bad thing because you tend to try and find the shortest route to getting something done but my might be true that you might get the answer quicker if you can find that but in terms of self-development it's not the best way because for that reason you don't necessarily understand you don't learn to become a chef you just copy and paste the recipe but there's in terms of percentage breakdown i always think of 70 percent of your time should be uh learning by doing getting your hands dirty if you want to learn how to like make money on the internet and become a millionaire, just try and sell $1 worth of product, make a site, go on kajabi.com, go on square.com, whatever, make a course on teachable, whatever it may be, and then go through the process. And through that process, you will learn of all the things you don't know, and you will learn a, a shit ton in the process. The 20% is more self-directed. So this is reading books, listening to podcasts like this one, where you're taking your own time to go and try and figure out the answers. And then the remaining 10%, after you've done all that, then asking others, finding a mentor, someone who's done it before, asking your peers. I feel like that's the most bang for your buck is trying to focus in that 70, 20, 10 split. Yeah, I'm not sure that's right. I think that might be useful for you, but I think it really depends on the person. I know for me, I'm in a very similar breakdown. I thought that starting my own company and bootstrapping it would be way more impactful for how I understood business than for me to go to business school. Like I know that sitting in a classroom and learning this is how you sell, this is how you build is was just not going to be as impactful as if I did it myself. But I do think there are people that is a great strategy for them. 
And I think one thing that I miss out on is I, I've worked at a lot of small companies and I've learned a lot and put on a ton of hats, but I also don't have the like compendium of knowledge that a larger organization has for this is the, how process works best. And they have a ton of practice doing that. I, I think there is something to be said about having mentors and other people who can short circuit some of those learnings. So you don't have to spend a year figuring it out yourself. Yeah, I see that 10% of asking others is almost like a catalyst. But I think that it's it's adding fuel to the fire, but you have to have the fire going already. And that's the doing part in, in my perspective. Yeah. It's like putting your learning on steroids. But if you just go and ask people for the answers without getting totally. your fingers, a lot of that, the, the one thing about learning by doing is it's applied knowledge. That's why I think it's the sort of knowledge that really sticks. Even when, I think you're probably similar to me in terms of the number of books we consume is stupid. But how many of the things, like if you said to me, here's a long list of my Kindle library, like what were the key takeaways from each book? I'd be like, I'd probably blank for a long time trying to think of what the key takeaways. And um, same thing when a lot of people I coach in my team, they've read a lot of the books I recommend to them about three years ago and i'm like yeah but you're doing this now so the doing part now read the book and then you're going to take all those learnings you got from the book or a coach or a mentor and now because you're doing it it's going to make sense and that's that apply application of learning which is really helpful yeah i find reading a book in isolation and not having being able to apply it i just will not retain anything yeah. i also i try to figure out how i should summarize the information that i've read because even if i've read a book and it's super applicable in that period of time to do that task. If I'm not doing that task and I come back to that task two years from now, it's going to take me a little bit of time to re-remember how to do everything. And so how do I store that knowledge from that book so that I don't have to reread it? I typically find that those type of very specific books, it's better to have a physical copy so I can actually take notes in the margin that I can go back to. I've thought about writing my own summaries and own outlines about a book for like top takeaways, but never that habit hasn't stuck for me. I feel like in this new world of generative AI, we're going to have your personal knowledge base where you can just type your question and it's going to put up all the references that you've read, listened to and everything else and be like, bing, there you go. You read this book seven years ago. They had this interesting snippet <laughs> around how to go to market on this particular aspect or something and then boom, applied learning. <laughs> yeah. And I think learning for me, that applied learning, the way that I internalize information, someone can tell me something like, this is how you should be thinking about pricing, or this is how you should conduct a sales call or something. But unless I have gone through the pain of actually understanding why I need to do X, Y, and Z, I don't internalize that learning. <laughs> Which goes to what you know, context behind advice is more important than the advice itself. Yeah. If you like you say when you're doing the when you're doing the doing and you're doing a project, you're working there and you got some advice and then you're like, Why did you say that? You had this context, you were you said for example, PR was like the best thing for you and why was PR good for you is the more important question to ask than just like applying PR. And I think that because you, you've had those projects, then you can internalize that knowledge a bit and say, This bit makes sense to me, but this one may not. And it's I think this is another takeaway. I guess from the learning processes, by all means, ask for advice and get as many data points you can to play with, but just try and through and understand the context and the why behind as a primary output than just copying and pasting the advice. Do you think you came to the US, didn't have product market fit, you it 
eventually figured out that you didn't have product market fit and you changed the process in order to get product market fit. Is there anything that, and we've just talked about how you typically like to learn by doing and being told something without that context isn't necessarily the most helpful, but is there something you wish you had known before coming to the US that could have cut the time to product market fit? So this is why I think like having the mentors and like the asking other people would have been great as a catalyst in that scenario because ultimately we came to the same conclusions as if someone would have told us in that context, but it just took us longer. So I think it's more increasing the speed in coming to those learnings. But the, I think the two key takeaways for me would be if we just started out with the custom development acquisition instead of acquisition model for go to market, that custom development would have just got us to those learnings a lot quicker. And so we would just save time. So that's one thing. The can, second can we just is, pause? Can we pause there for a sec? Because I don't think we've been very crystal clear about the customer development versus acquisition. Sure. The point of customer acquisition is trying to go for money from day one. And the point of customer development is to better understand customers from day one and money coming as a like secondary cause. Of Beautiful summary. Great. <laughs> <laughs> it's spot on, spot on. It, instead of revenue, you're focusing on learning. If I had that model in the beginning, then we would have got there quicker. The second one is you asked the question around like, how do you know when you know, too long, you're spending too long on a particular position or when something working and when's not. I think later down the line, I learned more about being more methodical and data-driven in calculating and justifying product market fit. So with things like conversion rates throughout the funnel, retention, product usage, if you sign up to Twitter, product market fit would be, sorry, or good usage to signify that you've got product market fit with a particular user. If they add seven people within a certain period of time, they're going to become a good user. These kind of like very specific metrics and say, okay, now I know that's a sign of a good user. How can I manage the product to get to that aha moment as quickly as possible? And are we achieving that? And if not, then something needs to change. I didn't have that methodical approach to um, when we should stop an experiment. And that again, means you spend time and money too long on something. Yeah. Cool. Is there anything else you want to cover? I think, yeah, let's wrap that up. I think that's pretty good. What's the summary? Three key takeaways, customer development over acquisition, revenue as a consequence of product market fit, not the goal. If you're going to pivot, think about the product the segmentation, the positioning, getting your first customers, try and get beta interviews, try and interview and learn from customers before trying to sell to them as the key is the kind of key three things. And then you had my framework for learning 70% doing 20% self-directed and 10% or bugging other people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. You want to shoot in the plugs and what we've got for listeners? Yeah. So go to the searchforgrowth.com has our, all our links also in the show notes. These will be linked, but Alfie has a newsletter rocket Jeep, where he covers how to get your first million in revenue for technical founders and sales. I have a newsletter called content. I consumed where I send you links of interesting things that I've read and some musings on the week. Typically they're like very startup focused and we're both on LinkedIn and yeah, sign up for and subscribe these episodes, but the most important thing, feedback, send us an email feedback at the search We read all the emails and try to incorporate them as quickly as possible. Some things that are coming on the horizon, music. Yeah. Intro. That's like the big thing. Sweet. Thanks again. Thanks. been a fun episode. Next time, I think we're going to do your story, right? We're going to dive into your, yeah. your founding story and learn a bit about your journey. Yeah. Cool. All right. Have Let's a good one. Up. Ciao.